0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, April 21st, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. The financial regulatory reform in Washington would create additional moral hazard. Why monitor a bank's health when the government will bail out depositors and investors when it fails? That according to Mark Calabria, Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute. The debate in the last couple of weeks is whether or not these bills actually do create permanent bailout authority or whether they end the bailouts and make them impossible, ending the too-big-to-fail problem.
1: Well, a lot of it gets to you know the definitional uses. I mean, everybody seems to have redefined bailouts and too-big-to-fail to favor their own position. So I think we should start with an observation that on too-big-to-fail, the really discussion is about whether you end it or whether you manage it. Uh, Senator Dodd's bill really takes the approach of you know, we're not going to end too big to fail. We're just going to identify those firms that are too big to fail ahead of time, and we're going to regulate them in such a way that they won't fail. So, and and I think he's very explicit in that manner. And a number of people, including Paul Volcker, have pointed out that the Dodd bill does not end too big to fail. So that's part of it. The other part of it is a bailout. Uh, And Senator Dodd has redefined a bailout in his bill to mean it's only a bailout if the taxpayers put money into it. So the structure of what his system would be is that if a too-big-to-fail institution gets into trouble, the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, would step in, resolve the institution, and potentially make some creditors whole or give them more than they would otherwise, but would do so at the expense of the rest of the banking industry. So it would go back and it would charge the rest of the banking industry. So essentially, you kind of have a TARP that is paid for by the banking industry, and so because this is defined as that the taxpayer—I mean, we'll set aside that a tax on a bank is still a tax, which makes the bank a taxpayer. Set that aside and say that because the bill does not tax general taxpayers, that Senator Dodd has defined it as not a bailout. Um, so if you certainly accept that definition, then you would accept his conclusion. Uh, Senator Shelby and I think a lot of other Republicans uh, and you know even to some extent many Democrats have raised the concern that even if you are protecting the taxpayer— from pain into this, you still create a situation of moral hazard, which is where economists will say that because you're insured against something, you take more risk. For instance, you know, I, for instance, had deposits at Wachovia, and we know that Wachovia went down. I never, for once, decided I had to run down the street and take my deposits out of Wachovia, because I knew the FDIC would make my make me whole in terms of my deposits. The other side of that is clearly, I did no monitoring of the bank behavior. So the trade-off here is that if we extend an FDIC type guarantee to other debt holders, beside depositors, is that those debt holders no longer have any incentive to monitor institutions. And this is a very critical point because the way most management is kept in check is not through regulation from the government. It's through regulation of the marketplace, that the more and more you make take risky activities, the more and more you have bad management decisions, the market will come in and say, we're going to charge you more higher, higher rate to lend to you. And ultimately, that will be able to constrain a bank or any company's ability to grow because they'll have to pay more and more for funds. Uh, If you sever that by saying to the lenders, don't worry, you'll get paid under any circumstances, you lose that constraint on bad management, on bad business decisions by essentially having no market discipline. So the real harm in this bill is not necessarily whether the taxpayer have to come in and make bank shareholders or bank creditors whole, the real harm in this decision is whether you greatly increase moral uh, moral hazard by reducing market discipline and ultimately end up with more financial crises, which will have other taxpayer costs. I mean, for instance, we have a financial crisis that caused a recession. Yes, the taxpayer might not be bailing out the banks, but the taxpayer will more than likely take a hit
0: bailing out the economy. When you have an institution that is involved in thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of transactions, and that bank or institution has to be frozen in some regard. They've essentially done the equivalent of putting a big orange boot on the accounts that are held there. Uh, In some cases, these are many, 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 many billions of dollars in holdings that can't do anything in the economy, that's a real cost.
1: Well, I mean, let's let's parse that out a little bit because in many instances, such as derivatives uh, or even uh, you know loans, you're able to net out. Such as, I mean, let's say that you know I have my mortgage with a bank. I also have my deposits with that bank, so they have. I have an asset with them. I have a liability with them. Uh, quite often, in the bank resolution scheme, you can net out that difference in a failed institution. And it's the same with derivatives that I've. Five derivatives with you, and some of them I lose on, some of them win on. I won't owe you anything but the net. Now, normally, if you go to something, if you go to a bankruptcy court rather than in a resolution regime that of the FDIC, the bankruptcy court more or less, except for these derivative countries, will put a stay on everything. And so, you will have that instance where they'll sort of say a timeout. But even within that timeout, you'll be able to have these institutions. Uh, still operate. I mean, for instance, many of us have probably flown on a bankrupt airline. A hundred years ago, over a third of the rolling stock of the railroad industry was in bankruptcy at one time or another, and people still rode on railroads, and they rode on bankrupt railroads, just as today people fly on bankrupt airlines. And for instance, this is one of the bigger differences, I think, between a bankruptcy regime versus a receivership regime. The FDIC is set up to essentially do two things, either quickly sell a failed bank to somebody else, or to chop it up and resolve it. There really isn't an instance. This is why you see most of these resolutions done over sort of a weekend where they close it down. Uh, whereas, you know, you get to remember there's different chapters to, to bankruptcy. Chapter 7 is sort of an equivalent where you go in and you're supposed to liquidate an institution. In Chapter 11, however, the desire is to reorganize. And in many of these institutions, there might be an ongoing value to keeping the institution around. It's just that okay, they had a liquidity, they couldn't raise money, uh, or they made a bad decision that got them in trouble. But ultimately, this is a viable business, and in those cases, the FDIC really doesn't—you know—it doesn't allow for that sort of reorganization of it. You, you don't see banks come out of receivership. You know, we're not going to see another Wachovia they're not going to come back out. They were taken in, they were sold. Uh, and that's really how that process works. So I think to some extent, while the FDIC process tries to work very quickly so that people don't have that disruptions to getting their deposits or getting loans and such, you also have similar mechanisms under bankruptcy. And that's one of the things that both the bankruptcy court and receivership try to take in mind, which is what do, how do we minimize the economic damage that can come about from having this disruption?
0: This issue of systemic risk is something that, as Peter Van Doren and others at Hikato have pointed out, is something that in almost all cases cannot be identified in real time.
1: And this is one of the real problems, uh, you know, with, with the bailouts, because you often hear the claim that, you know, if we had not bailed out, you know, Bayer and AIG and and, and many of these other companies, that we'd be in Great Depression Part Two. Um that may or may not be true. We, we simply do not have the, the scientific capacity within economics and finance to say that with any certainty. Um, I think we can say very large certain that it would be unlikely to happen, uh, but there's always that very slim chance. Um, we can look at some of the facts on the ground. I mean, we know, for instance, that not one company that was a counterparty to Lehman actually failed because of Lehman's bankruptcy. So contagion and the spreading of failure like a virus is really something that you see in a lot of theoretical models, but you really rarely ever see these instances in the real world. I mean, we have tons of examples of industrial companies failing and... Many of the suppliers are still standing. So the number of actually knockoff failures is quite small. You do get instances where it's once again the question of panic and people say, oh, if this bank is bad, then all banks are bad. And that's two
0: different kinds of contagion. And that's
1: two different kinds of contagion. One contagion is, as I mentioned, that you suffer a loss because you've lent to somebody who fails and you don't get paid, so you fail because of that failure. And that's and that's the sort of contagion that actually is actually quite small. People have looked at that, they've measured it, and the interconnectedness to any one firm is a lot less than people actually think it is. So that seems to be more a theoretical possibility than an empirical reality. And the same is true of panics. And you saw this throughout the marketplace where people were able to distinguish between good firms and bad firms you know for instance in the commercial paper market when the commercial paper market imploded people were able to distinguish between commercial paper written by financial companies versus per commercial paper written by you know, industrial companies. And there was not a run on industrial company-issued commercial paper. There was a flight from poorly written commercial paper issued by banks that were in trouble. And so the marketplace actually does seem pretty good between parsing out. But there's always this theoretical possibility that people put out there that, well, we're all just panic, you know, and there will somewhat that we'll suspect that since there's one bad institution, all institutions need to be the same. You can clearly, you know, construct theoretical models that get you this result. But once again, it's one of those interesting little theoretical possibilities that we have almost never seen in the real world. But because there's a logical case to it that you can explain some sort of possibility how this can happen, policymakers are always sort of greatly concerned about it. You know, I characterize it as being very similar in form to, uh, you know, the George Bush's foreign policy, a preemptive war. We don't know that somebody's got weapons of mass destruction, but we suspect it. So we're going to go in and invade to get to take care of that worst-case scenario. We've had the equivalent of the financial markets, which is it might not be very likely that we'll have great depression too, but we so so want to avoid that. We'll throw trillions of taxpayer dollars at it just to make sure. It's the same. It's the same sort of precautionary principle uh, that you see in environmental, you know, research as well. So it's that problem of because there's this very, very slim chance of something we think could happen, even though it wouldn't and it's never happened before. I mean, I think it's worth keeping in mind, bank runs in the Great Depression of the 30s is where people like the, f- the favorite bugaboo that people like to put back and say, well, get back to this. Um, the market pretty much did distinguish between good banks and bad banks in the 30s. And the argument that everybody lumped them together is just simply incorrect.
0: And there are plenty of proffered opportunities for investors to do exactly that, determine which institutions are uh, oh, yes. strong and weak.
1: There's a lot of money to be made from figuring out, you know, who knows how to manage your business and who doesn't. And so, there's a lot of money on the line. And consumer, even even relatively uh, unsophisticated consumers, for instance, there's a number of academic studies that have looked at whether uninsured depositors. I mean, up until recently, when the deposit insurance cap was raised to two fifty, before that, for a very long time, since since the SNL crisis, it was at hundred thousand. There are a number of academic studies that have looked at the behavior of depositors with amounts above that. And they do show the ability to distinguish between well-run and bad-run institutions, and they do exert market discipline. So I think there's a lot of assertion from some of my friends on the left that markets simply don't work. There's no market discipline, and you need regulation to substitute for that. Uh, The empirical evidence, I think, very strongly refutes the assertion that you simply will not have market discipline if failure is a possibility. The absence of market discipline becomes when – these institutions and these creditors believe they're going to be bailed out, not from when they believe they're going to be on the line. Uh, and they certainly sophisticated market participants very generally have the ability to figure that out. And you saw this both in the case of Lehman and Bayer where if you look up weeks, you know, as much as a month before either one of them imploded, their creditors, their smart creditors were getting out people were getting out. It was not a sort of shock to the system. Uh, You know, sophisticated creditors were looking at and said, these guys are going down, I'm getting out now. Um, So there was not some sort of overnight run on these institutions. There was a long, slow drain. And anybody left at the end of it was somebody who just wasn't paying attention.
0: Mark Calabria is Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at cato.org.